Support for today's episode of Script Apart comes from ScreenCraft. Breaking into Hollywood as an aspiring writer can be a confusing, convoluted path. Fortunately, ScreenCraft are here to help writers with both the craft of writing and the business of Hollywood. ScreenCraft has everything for your writing journey, from video lectures by your favourite writers such as J.J. Abrams and Tony Gilroy, to a daily blog with amazing advice. It's also no secret that ScreenCraft have the best screenwriting competitions around. Hundreds of past winners and finalists have started their careers with the direct support of ScreenCraft. Netflix, Amazon, Apple TV+, Lionsgate, Universal, Blumhouse, Hulu. The list goes on and on of places that ScreenCraft winners have sold scripts to or have got staffed on shows at. So if you're an aspiring writer, don't wait to check out ScreenCraft at ScreenCraft.org today. Follow the link in today's show notes to find out more and get your writing dreams started. Carl's whole goal, the reason he wrote the book, the reason he wanted the movie to succeed, was to make us realize how precious life is in the universe and how precious life is on our planet. And if somehow we realized that we weren't alone and that we were being invited to become citizens of a galaxy that, that was teeming with life, maybe we'd stop trying to destroy each other and stop trying to burn the planet to a crisp and stop trying to do ourselves in. This is the same shit we're, we're up against today. Welcome to Script Apart, a podcast about the first draft secrets of great movies. Each episode, a brilliant screenwriter revisits their initial screenplay for what became a beloved movie, discussing what changed, what didn't, and why, from first draft to the big screen. This week, we're delighted to be joined by the excellent James V. Hart, whose screenwriting talents have seen him work with everyone from Steven Spielberg to Francis Ford Coppola. There's one movie in his extensive filmography, however, that he looks back on with particular pride. Directed by Robert Zemeckis, Contact was the story of a scientist played by Jodie Foster who discovers proof of alien life. Before it was adapted by James into one of the most celebrated sci-fi dramas of all time, Contact was a novel written by the renowned astronomer Carl Sagan, a close personal friend of James's. Carl sadly didn't live to see the film's completion, passing away after a long illness just months before Contact's release. James looks back on the movie today as a testament to the warmth and intellect of both his friend Carl and Carl's brilliant partner, author Andrewian, both of whom he worked with closely while adapting Contact. It was a tricky screenplay to get right. As you'll discover in this episode, the book was a dense meditation on what would happen if Contact were actually made with life from another planet, the ripples it would send through politics, through religion, and everything in between. Translating that into a piece of blockbuster entertainment without losing any of the book's authority or spirit of scientific discovery, in a time dominated by the explosions and spectacle of alien movies like Independence Day, was a daunting task. This is the story of how James pulled it off. Over an engrossing conversation, we reflect on the movies that Contact helped inspire, a version of the script that included the Pope as a major character, and why James is still not satisfied all these years on with the film's ending. Truly, they should have sent a poet to interview James, Instead, you guys have me. Sorry about that. Before we dive into the episode, a quick heads up that Script Apart is now also a digital magazine. Get access by supporting us on our brand new Patreon page, where for the price of a single cup of coffee a month, you can help us keep producing episodes, you can submit your questions for upcoming guests, and yes, you can read our 51-page magazine featuring interviews with screenwriters that you won't find anywhere else. 
Okay, with that out the way, let's get into my conversation with James V. Hart about the incredible contact. A massive thanks to our Patreon supporters that includes Adrian A. Cruz, Will Stanbridge and Chris Wade. You're listening to Script Apart, hosted by me, Al Horner, produced by Camille Demek. James, it's so great to have you on Script Apart today. How are you doing? So far, so good. Uh, let me know in an hour. <laughs> See how we hold up. Yes, yes, indeed. You've had such a decorated career and you've worked on so many incredible projects. It really was hard picking one movie to zero in on for today's episode. I picked Contact, as I was saying off mic there a moment ago, because I have a really close personal attachment to this movie, discovered it in a really formative time for myself as a film fan. Where does it stand for you amongst all the other great films that you've helped bring to the screen? I think the experience that I had with Carl Sagan and Annie Drian uh, was... And I'm going to use a Carl Sagan word, penultimate experience for me. And I, I've had many, I've been fortunate to have many, but working with the Carl Sagan and the Andrian for three years on the development of the script. Um, I, that's something that's so unique that, I mean, I'm, I'm the only writer that got to have that experience with him, even though there were several other writers on the project. It was really quite remarkable. It never would have happened if I weren't a writer. Mm. And I'm learning this. Uh, you know, I wanted to be a physicist. I wanted to be an astronomer. I wanted to be a, 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 a you know an astronaut. I wanted to go all that, do all that stuff. But I never had the math. I was shitty at math. So, but as a writer, I got to spend intimate, personal, uh, professional time with one of the greatest minds on the planet. And I never would have had that access if I weren't a writer. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's I think what I've been learning coming to appreciate more and more that I'm getting these opportunities because I'm a writer not because I'm an accountant or a banker or a, uh, a teacher although teachers would certainly have access but because I'm a writer this is such a scientifically authoritative or authentic film I should say it really does feel rooted in the science I wanted to ask to what degree that was something you had to play catch up on whether you had to do lots of research to kind of get yourself up to speed with some of the complex concepts in the film. But it sounds like you always had like an interest in that. You always had a passion. It just wasn't something you were able to turn into a career. So writer instead. Carl wanted this to be, to feel like it was actually happening and that it was, this is what it would be like when it happens. And it wasn't if, it was when for him. I'll tell you that story in a little bit. I did do a lot of reading and I met with a lot of, I met, I read Timothy Ferris's book, Coming of Age in the Milky Way. I read some books, I read Carl's books and Anne's books. Um, Broke His Brain was an incredible book. So yes, but the, the big challenge was, the book is this thick, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, the book is um, basically a, a long dialogue. It's probably like what Galileo did. And it's a long, a long dialogue between religion and science. And the mission part of going to the center of the galaxy and where she meets the image of her father was this, this much. (laughs) (laughs) And so we had to build, we had to build human being feeling emotional characters where, and I'm not going to say they weren't in the book, but there was, it was a very, very heavily laden scientific debate with religion. Mm. So the biggest challenge was how do you take these science concepts and make them, uh, um, uh, understandable to a, a viewing audience and how can you show it visually as opposed to standing up there and talking about what it is you know uh, that was the biggest challenge and Carl was very um, 
and and were very generous in finding ways to visually tell the story as opposed to a science professor lecturing the audience. So this is what you have to know before you 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 get to watch this movie, or this is what's happening now. You know, it's like the last thing you want is a is a boring science lecture. He wanted science to be exciting. He wanted kids to be excited about being in science. You know, uh, he wanted he wanted uh, young people to see, think that was as cool as being Indiana Jones. You know, so that was the biggest challenge. How do you take these lofty concepts and put them into visual and and layman's terms where the audience is engaged, as opposed to I don't get, I don't understand. Uh, that was the biggest challenge. So, Carl would would I would question Carl on the purpose of the subway system. The the, the that was actually he actually had two physicists work for ten years to come up with a, a plausible way where that what they called an Einstein Rosen bridge could be experienced in the book. I think in the screenplay I described the the movement through the tunnels. Uh, it's like peristalsis on uh, amphetamines. That's right. You know, um, so the designers and had to t- had the great designers, uh, a lot of people at Weta, the designers had to take those descriptions that were lengthy in the book and we tried to minimize them in the script and visualize what they look like. I mean, I could have written 25 pages just on what that looked like. So that was our biggest challenge. How do you make it accessible for an audience and how do they how do they stay with you what, what, are, what are the breadcrumbs you're giving the audience to keep them leaning forward and going yeah i get it and i'd be interested to know james what can you tell me about the cultural moment that this movie arrived in because the late 90s from what i remember i was quite young it seemed to have this groundswell of interest in alien life and we we were certainly seeing a lot of little green men on our screens at the time you have that fun throwaway line in the film that, that, nods to that. try begging well i was thinking more of try begging for some of that hollywood money as ellie puts yeah. it why not they've been making money off aliens for years right yeah. it seemed like it was um capping a, a period in which there was this interest in alien life both in fiction and sort of in our culture what was contact trying to do and how was it trying to respond to to some of that contact took 20 years to to, from Carl's inception in the 80s when he had the idea he was going to do it as a he wanted to do it like War of the Worlds like a live television show wow. um, and Kate Coppola was even involved and it was called First Contact the biggest hurdle to get over was there were no aliens in this there were no little green men there are no flying saucers it, it, is, it is against every audience expectation about that, that Hollywood uh, and, and great literature have, have uh, put in front of them uh, of us that we're expecting to be invaded. We're expecting to be, you know, there are all to be demons and creatures, you know. And so the biggest challenge for contact was fitting into a category or a genre that was totally unexpected. And and in many cases, you know, where are the the, the question, where are the where are the aliens? Where's the when do we get to see the aliens? So and I do think that NASA was at the peak of their powers then uh, in terms of shuttle um Shuttle and, and also the Mars rover. I mean, Andrian was part of that whole team when that first little rover landed. Uh, I do think that it, it, I don't know if contact, I don't know if it'd be made today. I, I don't know, given how much of the culture is. Arrival was a good example of, of a movie that came along that was different. Yeah. Still had the aliens and they still looked weird. But it was more of a human being story. So I think it was almost an enigma that Contact showed up and, and did as you know it, it did as well as it did, even though it wasn't well received. 
uh, in its initial um, uh, release. It's because it's built over the years like Hook has and Dracula has. The following has increased in contact because it is so unique. There's not a bunch of movies out there that take this seriously and want to present the, the possibility of we are not alone. Um, Spielberg did it in Close Encounters. Mm. You know, I thought we were done with Friendly Aliens in Close Encounters. I thought he, and he did E.T. So uh, I do think that that there's a zeitgeist now more than ever, just for the release of the UFO tapes from the, or the Air Force. You know, there is a, something in the zeitgeist about are we alone? Is there something out there? And do, and how do we embrace the reality of that as opposed to the Hollywood fiction? Mm. Yeah. It's, and it's, it's still unique. You, you watch Contact and there's not another film that deals with the phenomenon that I'm aware of like Contact does. Absolutely. It, it is interesting to, to revisit the film now. I mean, it's such an accomplished film with so much to say about the intersection between science and religion, our role in the universe and the sheer emptiness of life without each other on Earth and beyond. It's strange not to think of studios recognising the power of this story back then, but I, I suppose to put myself in Hollywood's position at the time, this was an inherently talky movie, a lot of conversation, an inherently big budget movie. And it was a movie devoid of, you know, big action set pieces to throw in the trailer. As you were working on it, how confident were you that this film was actually going to get made? You never really know. My, my work was done by the time they started production. I had worked with Carl and Ann for almost three years. Michael Goldenberg came on to do a, a revision. Uh, and then the director that was prior to Zemeckis, the, the movie I wanted to see was George Miller. That's right. Yeah. George came on for two years. Jody had, um, 20, the hot zone had fallen apart at Fox and Jody had, was going to be the lead in my hot zone script. When that fell apart, we finally got it made. When that fell apart, she moved straight over to contact. So I got the, you know, I got the best of both worlds and the producer, Linda Oaks had, had actually introduced Anne and Carl together as a couple. Oh, wow. So Linda was instrumental in, uh, in pushing this forward. But George Miller came on and brought in Minnow Mays to write, who should have gotten credit on the film. George Miller expanded the reach and the, and the world uh, of contact in a, in a wonderful way. And I wanted to see his movie. The only thing that I, and I think Demekis did an outstanding job. The only thing that Demekis did was date the movie by putting Bill Clinton in the film. <laughs> yes. you know, and I've never quite figured that out why it was showing off the technology, but now it's dated. That's now it's 1997 always. And it didn't happen. You know, we originally had a female president, which would have been, uh, was far reaching in those days. Yeah. You know, that was ahead of his time. Uh, we originally had a female president. They turned her into a vice president, but that still irks me. Every time I see the film, I go, you know what? Now we're dated. Now we're, now we're a period piece. <laughs> Uh, yeah. um, but uh, so there it was a rocky road getting to production and and jody foster willed that movie into existence yeah you know she survived uh three writers uh two directors a studio that wasn't totally convinced that this was the way to go and they even made me cut out there's a big piece of the of the original script that's not in the film carl's conceit was that there was a message a mathematical equation of pi Pi times a radius squared. You, you even still have to learn that in school. I'm yeah, sure. yeah. 
And pi times the radius square is a transcendental number, which means you can carry it out to infinity and it never repeats a pattern. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and Carl's conceit was that if you carry pi out far enough, that there would be a place in that, in that pattern of numbers where you would see the artist's signature that the universe was created by a more powerful, higher intelligence. And uh, that's, what, that's what we put in our script. The head of the studio at that point, at that time, who should remain nameless, uh, fired me because I put math in the script. <laughs> so um, I began to be on the sidelines and seeing what the rewrites were and Minnow Maze came in. But uh, uh, that was the whole signature core of the book was there is proof the universe was created inside a mathematical equation that is the same here on this earth or a million light years away. It's pi times the radius squared exists throughout the universe. Mm. So um, I don't know why I got off on that, but it, it always irks me that, uh, that pi is not there and the Bill Clinton is. We did not know it was really iffy if it, if it was going to get made or not. And mm. the budget ballooned. Um, a lot of what Zemeckis did brilliantly was pioneer a lot of the video, the new uh, CG um, integration uh, where you couldn't tell. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the famous mirror shot where she runs up to the, you know, everybody's going, how'd they do that? Yeah. And the use of light and um, uh, even the machine, all those things that, that were new and expensive. So the movie, I think, the film came in at twice its budget, which made it harder for it to be a success. It's quite interesting. There's a, there was a New York Times article that came upon while I was researching this that it was just before the, um, the film's release. And it was just such an interesting window into the tension uh, between you and Zemeckis and, and Carl and everyone working on Contact were trying to do and the sort of studio implications if it failed. So this was Linda, o Linda Obst, I think it's pronounced. Uh, so she was one of the exec producers. She said, um, the film does not underestimate the American public. If we're right, it's fantastic. And if we're not, well, it will make movie going just a bit more dreary. <laughs> <laughs> Did the stakes feel that high as you worked on it? If, if this thing was a bomb, a 90 million bomb, the chances of Hollywood making more films of this sophistication, of this ambition, asking the big questions that Contact does, they would have fallen away. Look, that's exactly what happened. You didn't see another film like Contact until Arrival. Mm. I mean, you saw some, I think there was a couple, one of them was called First Contact, but they were always about the, it, it, we, you, we went more towards the alien abductions and invasions and Independence Day and, you know, uh, sort of became the, the template as opposed to contact. Mm. Yeah, I'm working on a project now that deals with um, the hybrid thing that we're hearing about, about how there's, where there are hybrids amongst us, you know, that uh, we were birthing there's a new generation of, of alien DNA and or what I call NTI, non-terrestrial you know, DNA and human DNA. We're, I'm trying to write something very realistic about the possibility of that, what, what that would be like mm. without it being flying saucers and ships landing, all that stuff. But look, they, you look at what happened. They didn't make another film like Contact for a long time. If you break Contact down, it seems as much a film, if not more, about the ripples that would be created in politics, in religion, in every facet of society by the discovery of alien life, much more so than the actual alien life itself. That makes up what, like 10 minutes of the film right at the end. Well, also the, just the social implications of it, we tried to dramatize uh, as well, like the whole scene uh, in Socorro, New Mexico, when the, the crowds show up at 
at the dish, you know, mm. um, that's right out of Carl's book. Uh, it was a much more violent and not a violent. It was a much more complicated scene. When I wrote it, the religious right in the book, I mean, had a much bigger voice in the, in the book than it did in the film. And we, I think wisely, we moved away from dwelling on that all the time and made it important dramatically. Mm. Her, her not believing in God being an issue, the terrorists that uh, uh, coming from a kind of a religious occultism uh, was used used sparingly, but but effectively dramatically. Mm. Rob Lowe's character, the evangelical um, uh, voice of the right, made sense. Nobody, he wasn't painted as a crazy person. You know, he was being very rational, and and the whole grilling of, of Ellie uh, when she was being tested um, to as a candidate to go. And she couldn't use the word faith and she couldn't admit that she believed in that she didn't believe in God. Mm -hmm. So the, it was used sparingly, but quite effectively dramatically in making that point. Busey, the religious terrorist. Yeah. 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 was not in the book. You know, I, I created that character that felt we there needed to be some fringe element that was going to cause the destruction of the there in the book. There is a fringe element that causes the destruction of the machine, but he didn't have a face. So it was a very, it could very easily have tipped into a diatribe between religion and, uh, and science. And mm -hmm. McConaughey's character is not who I wrote. Really? Now, um, Palmer Joss in, in the book, and there's no love story in the book. Yes, that's right. Palmer Joss um, was a man in his 50s who had been converted by a, a religious experience he had when he was struck by lightning and lived. Uh, and he wrote the books that McConaughey, but he was, he was, he was a man in a, a much older than Ellie who had his mind blown apart by her and challenged. And she saw in him, her father, Ellie was looking for her father, not Matthew McConaughey. Yeah. But I thought Matthew did a great job of pulling, of, of pulling that, that role off. Is he, where is he? Is he like in the middle of a religious science debate? Mm. So he became a pivotal character to test her, her belief system to test, when, like when he says to you, did you love your father? Yeah, yeah. He says, can you prove it? You know, is there a scientific way to prove love? Another scene we didn't shoot that was in the script was in that same scene when they're together at that, at that big soiree and she steps out in the dress and everything, you know. This was at the uh, National Science Museum uh, in D.C. And there's a full cult prism, big giant uh, fulcrum, which um, you know, big steel, big steel ball on on a table, and you raise the ball up, and it swings and pendulums. You know, yeah. And the law of of the uh, of physics is that whatever the height of that ball is, when you drop it, it's only going to swing to the same height. It's not going to swing higher. So he is getting he he proves to her that she doesn't have faith in her scientific beliefs. He's okay. You stand here, and he puts the ball right up to the next to her face. You know, and pull and said, you're going to jump when it comes at you. You're going to think that it's going to hit you. No, no, it won't. You know, and of course, he lets the ball go and she jumps. You know, him proving that she, even her own, she doesn't even believe in her own scientific principles. And mm -hmm. it was a great scene. And I'm not sure why it wasn't shot. But it, it again, it visually demonstrated him challenging her scientific uh, beliefs. He is the philosophical counterpoint for Ellie in this movie. 
And as you say, also her love interest, they sleep together. There is chemistry between them, but they come from different standpoints. And all the way through the film, those strands to their relationship kind of are constantly knotting and constantly becoming more and more entangled. Do you look back on that then as being sort of a concession that was made to Hollywood to get this film made? Or are you at peace with it? Yeah, no, it was a casting. It was a it was a, a, a stunt casting to make sure mm-hmm. they had a they had two very um, names at the top of this 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 film, you know, to get it made. And McConaughey was, was very hot at that moment. Yeah, and I think maybe the older relationship was not so was not so readily acceptable. Yeah, they wanted a younger younger pretty face to be in there. And also, it's interesting, you know, McConaughey is very religious. He brought a lot to the table in terms of his own beliefs. We had a line in there when he and Ellie are debating that same scene at the soiree. We had a line in there when when she says to him, your God is too small. My God is the universe. It's, doesn't, it's, it's inclusive. It doesn't, doesn't you know, punish anybody. It doesn't condemn anybody. It doesn't, you know, and he wouldn't do the, line, he wouldn't do the scene with that line at the, your God is too small. Really? That is interesting. And it was one of my favorite lines that Carl loved the line. And at some point, I believe Anne made Zemeckis promise not to cut that line out. Because it was, it was Carl's line, your God is too small. Uh, and it, to me, it's as simple as if it's, if it's just us, it's an awful waste of space, um, which is not in the book. That's my line. Yeah. Uh, that came from um, Thomas Huxley. Um, 16th century philosopher that simple line your god is too small mine's as big as mine is the universe you know you you don't need a speech yeah to to get that concept through to the audience hey this is al just jumping in to tell you about two of our amazing sponsors this week first guys we need to talk about mubi mubi is a curated streaming service showing exceptional films from around the globe Every day, Mubi premieres a new film, each one thoughtfully handpicked from new directors and award winners alike. Beautiful, interesting, incredible movies, the best of cinema is at your fingertips, streaming anytime, any place. This week on Mubi, I've been having a ton of fun reacquainting myself with the movies of Pedro Almodovar. Volver, Broken Embraces, The Skin I Live In, Mubi has a ton of his films and you really can't go wrong with the Spanish director, especially if you're a fan of melodramatic meditations on memory, motherhood and sex. You can try Mubi for free for 30 days by visiting mubi.com forward slash script apart. That's M-U-B-I dot com forward slash script apart for a whole month of great cinema for free. Click the link in today's show notes to find out more. Support for today's episode also comes from Launchpad. Many talented emerging writers are missing just one thing that would take their career to the next level, someone to fight for them. That's where the Launchpad writing competitions come in. With nearly a decade of experience promoting up-and-coming writers, Launchpad has established itself as a premier hub for Hollywood to discover fresh voices and new ideas. Launchpad advocates for all 100 finalists from each competition, working with them to share their writing with the right industry members to advance their career. And the results? Well, they kind of speak for themselves. Launchpad winners have got staffed on shows, optioned their work to legendary producers, and sold their spec scripts to major studios, sometimes even after a bidding war. So what are you waiting for? Get your work in front of Launchpad's prestigious competition juries, including managers, agents, and executives at companies like Bad Robot, Lionsgate, Paradigm, and more. 
For your chance to join the Launchpad tradition of success, visit tblaunchpad.com or click the link in today's show notes. And now back to the conversation. I'm excited to sort of delve into the script and break down a couple of the scenes and a couple of the characters. But before I go on, James, I have to ask you, it's been rumoured that the Pope was intended as a major character in this film. Was that a plot point that you were involved in or was that something that was being explored by uh, by someone else who at one point was kind of on board the project in some way or another? Yeah, that wasn't me. Uh, we, did, we discussed how far to go with the religion. And I think in, in my draft, it, we did, it went pretty far in terms of ex- exposing the dilemma. The Pope came up a couple of times, but I don't think it was, I think that at least from my perspective, it was pulled back on uh, as being one, you don't want to hire the Vatican, you know, uh, out there <laughs> trashing your film. But I do, I, in the book, there is a whole thing from the Pope. I'm trying to remember what it was, but they're, they're, when, they're, when they're selecting, the, in the book, there's five people go, not one. You're selected from the, it was the United Nations, and my script was that United Nations more, so it's not just good old USA, but there yeah. was a, there was a representation, which was going to bring peace to a lot of places, Russian, Chinese, you know, that it, it really had a way of bringing, making it more of a peace mission, a universal earth mission. And mm. I think the Pope was involved in that about blessing the mission or something like that so uh, listen I, I think it's great that ellie became the sole uh traveler mm-hmm. but that wasn't the original concept it really was of the earth we have people representing us as a, as humanity going to this on this mission mm-hmm. very much like what we do now yeah 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 I suppose it does make it much more of a, a personal journey for Ellie being being the sole person to go. Of course, the disappointment about this is if you had had the Pope in the film, there's your casting for McConaughey. Then you could have had um, then you could have had your original relationship. Don't know how people would get on with with McConaughey as a Pope. Anyways, <laughs> <I'm>, <laughs> let's let's dig into. I'm sorry, I'm getting good visual on that. So, <laughs> um, contact two. Here we go. Yeah. Um, all right, all right, all right. You're blessed. <laughs> exactly. So the opening scene is so arresting. We begin on the universe, 8 billion light years from Earth. The cosmos is on the grandest scale we know, suspended in silence. Clusters of galaxies strewn like sea froth, whirls and smudges of light representing hundreds of billions of stars each. Milky Way galaxy, a view from the edge of the majestic spiraling disk, tens of thousands of light years across. Now, the Ring Nebula, we're backing out, backing out. Constellation Lyra, a local group of stars, the brightest of which is a point of hot blue-white light, Vega. Radio chatter clutters up the sound waves. What I adore about this opening is both its narrative use. So we're literally experiencing the travel of the Earth broadcasts as they reach Vega, setting up, well, the plot of the entire film. But also the thematic power. If this is a film about the vastness of space and the humility of recognising how small we are in face of that vastness, nothing quite sums that up. Like all the sound of humanity's biggest events kind of echoing out and fading into the ether. How did you arrive at this scene? Was it a tricky one to land on as your as your opener? Well, in this in my in my script, it's the reverse. You you start with you start in space and you move to Earth. Oh, really? And what Zemeckis did, which I thought was brilliant, I don't know if it was Michael Goldenberg or Minnow Mays, I think it was probably Minnow Mays, what Zemeckis did was start with Earth 
and let the radio waves carry you out to space, which I was very impressed with. When Carl and I worked together, we had it. We started the other way. We mm. started, as you just read, that sure sounded good. <laughs> Thanks, James. Yeah, I'd like to get back in that zone, uh, write some more of that stuff. Um, but uh, we moved the immenses and vastness of space down to Earth. Uh, and as the, the message got closer, I also intercut Ellie's life. I mean, we have her being born. Uh, we have her as a young girl with her father. We have her at Caltech. We have, you know, as the message gets closer and closer to Earth, she is growing. They're, they're moving like this. She's growing up and the signal is moving closer and closer until they finally, when she's there in New Mexico, it happens. I thought the opening was brilliant. You know, yeah. and I went, wow, why didn't, why, didn't, why didn't we think of that? And it made sense because all the radio waves, and you finally even hear Hitler. If you listen close enough, you hear Hitler you do, yeah. in that exchange. It also lets you know how much time is passing on Earth. Just by the change in the music, the change in the news reports, the change in, you know, it lets you know what's happening on Earth during this, you know, this journey of these sound waves going out into uh, the planet. The, I the idea was the same. The immenseness and vastness of space, the minuteness of our planet, and yet we're we're broadcasting these signals, you know, to the to the to the universe, to the gods, to the heavens. Mm -hmm. um, it's a big, big, big place to 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 find any other life. You know, that's that was Carl's thing. He wanted us to wake up and realize how precious life is in the universe. Carl's whole goal for the reason he wrote the book, the reason he wanted the movie to succeed was to make us realize how precious life is in the universe and how precious life is on our planet. And if somehow we realized that we weren't alone and that we were being invited to join, become citizens of a galaxy that, that was teeming with life, maybe we'd stop trying to destroy each other and stop trying to burn the planet to a crisp and stop trying to do ourselves in it, it, because it's, it's so so meaningless and so irresponsible when we could be joining a whole other level of being and, and humanity and or whatever they are um, and intelligence. Um, he just and he was hoping that in re, in truth that it would polarize us as a planet and as a species. You know mm -hmm. that's why I'm watching the response to the UFO stuff now. You know and people are still poo pooing it. Going, ah, well, you know, we, we didn't really mean it, yeah. but that was his goal was, was to make us realize how, how precious life is on this planet. And I think we're starting to learn that when we're watching what's happening to our climate and what it's doing to us. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Um, that with the vastness and the fact that you, that there's a little tiny dot there, a little blue dot with life on it, that why would you want to destroy that? Yeah. Why would you want to make that become extinct? And, and he, he was worried about this. Um, I'm going to tell you a quick one here. I was with Carl the day they turned on SETI at Goldstone at uh, Edwards Air Force Base when they turned on the radio telescopes to start searching the universe for extraterrestrial life. And he was with his son, Sam, uh, with his son, uh, Carl Jr. And he was like a big kid, like 18-year-old kid in high school prom, you know. had All his buddy scientists had gathered from around the country. They had a telephone hookup with um, Arecibo, which is now gone uh, in, in um, Puerto, Puerto Rico mm -hmm. and uh, Canberra in, in Australia. They were all going to call each other on the phone and flip the switch at the same time. 
no Zoom, none of this, you know, telephone. So they couldn't get this. They couldn't get the, the connections to work. You know, and Carl said, here we are. I'm going to search for life in, in the universe. We can't even get a long distance phone call to work. <laughs> but at the end of the day, we stopped on the way out of Edwards Air Force Base. The sun was going down. And there were all these boulders with the chevrons and the insignias of the battle squadrons and the, and the bomber squadrons and the fighter, you know, lightning coming out of the eagle's noses and flames shooting out of the American, all kinds of stuff. And Carl said, let's stop. So we did. We stopped. And uh, with that red dust is blowing and there was about 10 of us and he's, he's just standing there and everybody's already walking through this monument to war. You know, I saw him and the first time I had seen him be melancholy the whole day. He said, I he just out of the blue, he said to me, I give us 10 years. And I, what do you mean? And what's, he said, I give us 10 years. He said, he said, if we don't get a response in 10 years, if we don't get a signal back, I'm worried we won't be here to answer the call. And I thought at that time that he was talking about this monument to war that we were saying that we might destroy ourselves. You know, we might, we might just do ourselves in and miss the, miss the, miss the opportunity to make contact. What I realized after his death was that Carl, he was talking about himself, that he was sick and knew it and had a, and, and he wasn't. He didn't last 10 years. Yeah. He was gone in, uh, before the film was finished shooting. Mm-hmm. Um, but I realized he was talking about himself that he wouldn't be here to answer the call. Yeah. That, that was, and I, it's always stuck with me since I, when I had that realization of, of he was having, he was having a premonition, but also he was seeing what we'd done with our technology and all of this monuments to war. And he didn't make it. He didn't get to see the finished film. Um, he saw some of it, uh, but that was a that was a big, uh, a gigantic loss. And there's you know there's no there's no Carl Sagan, mm. there's no new Carl Sagan. But I can only imagine how the film must have taken on an emotional weight for you that that's greater because yeah you must you must know that this is a this is a monument to him, and he well presumably you would know best. I think he would have loved it, right? I think he would have given us a B plus. <laughs> uh, he graded all of my all of my notes. All my he would give me a grade. I think the highest I ever got was a B. Mm-hmm. He really like an English teacher. He'd go through and cross stuff out and go, "This is you know." And yeah, at the end of the film, when it says for Carl, uh, the first time I saw it, you, they have to you have to screen the movie for the writers who are credited on the film. Uh, and I've sat in that screening room. I think Minnow Mays was behind me. I sat in that screen room all by myself at 10 o'clock at night at Warner Brothers. And when Fort Carl came up, you know, uh, we just lost it. You know, I yeah. lost it. I had to go find somebody to talk to. I'm sure. Yeah. Um, uh, it, it is Fort Carl. Yeah. Um, but I don't, I think he would have been, he would have been disappointed. We didn't go further in some directions and maybe didn't like some of the solutions, but he, he and Ann actually did work on the script. They actually did a draft of the script. Yeah, that's right. I know he got a bunch of what he wanted in there. Yeah, that's important. We, we then meet young Ellie, James, and, and her father, of course, with whom she shares a really important relationship. And you introduce Ellie as this inquisitive kid with this appetite for understanding, but also a heartache that's going to become like a driving motivator in the person that she grows up to be. 
So while talking into a radio transmitter, she asks her dad, could we talk to Saturn? Her dad nods. Then there's a long pause. Dad, could we talk to mum? We talk to mum. And her dad, named Ted, hesitates a moment, then sighs. I don't think even the biggest radio could reach that far. We talked at the beginning of this about the importance of trying to find a human way into these big scientific concepts. Was this one of them for you? It seems like you've given her this, you've given the character of Ellie a deep personal connection to searching for belonging in the stars. This is more than just a job to her. Yeah. Um, and, and, and this is a credit to Michael Goldenberg, who shaped that scene based on scenes that I had written between her and her father. Um, but in that one, in that one scene, in that very simple exchange, you establish her mother's dead. That she's asking if science can can reach into the supernatural and into the paranormal and into religion. So you you've already set up uh, a a potential conflict that she's going to face the rest of her life, uh, and her dad basically feeding into that that um, curiosity when he says, when she says, is there anybody else out there? You know, when he says, um, well, if it's just us, it seemed like an awful waste of space. When I wrote that line and showed it to Carl, he said, that's it. You know, that's the best argument that anybody can make for us not being alone. Mm. You know, like, and, and that came from Thomas Huxley's quote about, you know, God went to all this trouble to build the universe and the stars and everything, you know, he wasted a lot of space for, uh, 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 for miserable wretches like us, you know. Mm. But in that one scene, you establish what's going to drive her through the rest of the story. It doesn't come home until the flashback when, when her dad dies, when Ted dies, which is still a brilliant moment. Uh, and again, that's Michael Gildenberg shaping it from my earlier death scene. But that act that punctuates the story engine of Ellie that what she wants and what she's trying to achieve is make contact. But now it's not just make contact with intelligent life. She's looking for her father. Yes. And that's why that line is echoed uh, three times in the film. Joss says it to her, which is the connection. And at the end, when she's giving the kids a tour, and she says she repeats it. So it, it, it became thematic and the thread that held Ellie's journey together, you know? Yeah, yeah. It also strikes me as fascinating that since Contact, we've had this almost like mini genre of movies about space travel that factor in father-daughter relationships. Yep. So Interstellar, which of course also has our man, the Pope, McConaughey, yes, yeah, yes. uh, Ad Astra, Armageddon, High Life. It, you know, if we had all day, I, you know, we could get into what is it about space travel that invites us as storytellers to contemplate our relationships with our, with our kids, with our families. In the interest of uh, not taking up your entire day, James, we should talk quickly about adult Ellie, who we meet a few pages later. I love the transition between scenes. We go from young Ellie struggling with her tiny radio, saying, I'm going to need a bigger antenna, to meeting adult Ellie, now grown up in the middle of a Puerto Rican jungle mountain range. She's looking at an enormous white thousand foot radio telescope cradled in the natural bowl of the mountain valley. Ellie was played by Jodie, uh, Jodie Foster, who is incredible, and I can't imagine anyone else, else in this role. Who was that character to you? Uh, what were some of the characteristics and inner conflicts that you wanted to imbue her with? It's real simple. She was channeling Carl. Really? And I realized that when I was watching, when I watched, the, I didn't get to see the film until it was finished. Uh, she had been in touch with me during production, and she was reading a couple of my other scripts. And, and Jimmy Woods was also keeping me posted, uh, who is, was a friend. 
she was channeling Carl. Mm -hmm. And you really do see that. You really do see that um, in her when she's when she's trying to raise money. Yeah. And when she's um, being tested uh, at the hearing, that, that last hearing where there's where Woods is throwing the book at her. And just in her dogged persistence on on pursuing the truth and pursuing with against you know against all odds and everything she was fearless so for me she was she had spent considerable time with carl and that's she's young carl second also the other one too is is, is andrian everybody says that ellie's character is based on carl's friend that um i can't remember her name not Ty, Ty, tyler tyler but andrian is really the model for ellie airway for, mm. for me i mean when i was writing ellie i was writing andrian that is really interesting because one of the things that's always struck me about the film and i mean i always put this down to well zemeckis was coming off forrest gump he presumably had license to do whatever he want wanted and to put as much into the film as he wanted i always wondered there's there's so much in the sort of opening act um of us following ellie as she kind of goes up against these people with very cynical, pragmatic, business-orientated attitudes. Um, and I, I wondered, you know, narratively, you could probably cut those beats and still end up with the same story, but there's something rich in there, and there's something you obviously wanted to fight for because it's important context for Ellie's discovery. Was it just a case of getting some of Carl into the film and showing that these discoveries come in the face of, like, massive resistance? And sometimes... These discoveries are co-opted by people who have been the biggest resistors, as is the case with some of the people that Ellie comes up against. Look at the movie, look at the film in terms of today and what's going on mm. and all the resistance that science is getting from politicians and religious groups. This pushback on science is, is I mean, I don't know what, I mean, the people at the NIH, the people at CDC that are under, under fire, all the medical people are under fire uh, by uh, a mindset that makes no sense to a, to a scientist. Mm. No sense whatsoever. You know, you get vaccinated for a reason. Yeah. That's when I was, when I was, I watched it not too long ago and I'm going, this is just the same. This is the same shit we're, we're up against today. Science has to butt heads with people who don't care or who don't understand or who don't want to care or who don't want to, have their belief system rocked yeah. by yeah. something new. The virus doesn't ha no, didn't give a shit about your politics. It's going to kill you or infect you, no matter what you what God you believe in. Yeah. You know? So uh, Ellie was facing the same kind of resistance. What do you mean, little green? That's why they do little green men. Yeah, there's a joke. You know, it's oh, she's the one over there doing the little. You know, uh, and that's what Kits not Kits. What Drummond tells her: you're we're going to ruin your career, and it still didn't stop her. Uh, and that to me is Carl. Uh, I do want to tell you one Carl story that will demonstrate to you the kind of person he was and why Ellie was just, it's almost like Ellie, it's Ellie at the end when she's with the kids. We were all in Disney World with Carl and Ann and, and uh, Sasha and Sam, who's the one year old with Ann. My son and my daughter, who both now, my daughter's a writer director and my son's a writer, but we all were in Disney World together. The kids are, are I don't know, six and nine at that point. And Sasha's the same age as Julia and, and Sam is one year old. And so we're all having breakfast together in one of those big Disney world places. 
and here come the Disney characters in, you know, Mickey and Pluto and Goofy and Donald and everybody and Minnie. And they, you know, they've got their big hands and their big heads. And uh, so, and Sam is just like mesmerized. He's sitting on Carl's knee, you know, and, and uh, uh, Goofy comes over to the table and is smiling and doing his thing, you know, and I'm just watching Carl watch this character. They're not allowed to speak. And Sam is clapping and, and Carl says, excuse me, Mr. Goofy, but uh, do they give you special uh, nonverbal uh, training and nonverbal communication? You know, and Goofy turns down and looks at Carl and goes, <laughs> and then goes back. And Carl just keeps watching him. He goes, um, Mr. Goofy, another question. Um when a child is afraid of you, do they give you any special way to, to deal with that fear and make them feel comfortable? Goofy's like, and by this time, my wife and I are going, whoever's inside Goofy's costume knows he's talking to Carl Sagan. You know? <laughs> and they had two or three exchanges. And finally, Goofy sits down at the table, takes his autograph pad with his big paw and starts writing out the answers for Carl. You know, and Carl, and Carl is dead. He's genuine. He's not putting this person on. You know, he is genuinely interested in how people communicate. Mm. And then the other tables are going, why does Goofy come to our table? Mom, he, can we go? You know, um, that's who Carl was. Mm. He, he, it didn't matter whether he was talking to Goofy or the Pope. <laughs> you know, he was interested in how people, how we communicate, how we reach each other, mm. how we connect to each other. And uh, I think that's the purest. I had many stories about Carl, but I think that's the purest moment for me when I saw him as the father with his child sitting on his knee, still doing what Carl Sagan does. <laughs> oh, wow. And he's more interested in what's out there than himself. Mm. That's so lovely. Haddon is a character that I wanted to discuss. He's the hardest character in the movie to pin down. You're never quite sure if he's altruistic maniacal or a bit of both somewhere in between good um, <laughs> later in the movie of course he'll be used as this plausible explanation for why what ellie experiences might not have happened at all but his presence in the script feels like he's more than just a red herring can, can you tell me about why you needed this character and, and what you wish to explore through him well i loved the character in the book uh he's a, he got a huge part in the book Haddon is a brilliant engineer but he's also um, uh, he's almost he's almost like um, Richard Branson, yeah. Uh, where he's a big showman, and he actually built a uh, uh, a sex resort out on Long Island called Babylon. You know, where you re you reenact all the Roman stuff, but it's all about sex amusement park. Is that right? Yeah, he's like a yeah, Disney World for adults. <laughs> But he's also a great technician. He's, he's made all this money in technology and uh, scientific breakthroughs and stuff, you know. And um, as in the film, he watches Ellie and sees what she's going through. She actually goes and pitches him, pitches him on what she's trying to do. And you needed this character. So it's like what is in in my in my sort of my my little world of the heart chart and all the things that I do with with structure. He's a traveling angel. He's a character. He's like a mentor or traveling angel. He's there to be too specific. He's Jiminy Cricket. You know, he's there to specifically help your main character when they need it most. 
not because they're helpless or because they because they, they they have to have earned the intervention from the guardian angel or the or the mentor character. So um, I love Haddon's character. He's my favorite character in the whole film. I actually ended the film with his death. He actually in in our in our story, he's the one who carries us out in the universe and shows us pie and shows us how the, how the, the perfect circle does not exist in nature it was created all atoms are you know or the, the, the atom that's a million light years away is the same atom here mm. you know pi times radius square so i i was really loved his character and and he does show up with what i what i call in my terminology a resurrection opportunity mm. the plan falls apart at the end of act two when the machine blows up had drummond is killed They've got no way to get to to fulfill the mission. They can't build another machine. Um, and uh, Haddon has that great moment where, you know, want to take a ride? Uh, that that he used his expertise and used his, his um, abilities to build a second machine. Without that, Ellie can't go. Mm. She can't fulfill her destiny. So, And they do the same exact thing in The Martian. Yes, <laughs> exactly the same thing in the margin. Oh, we're Chinese. We have a we have a you, you need a, a spare rocket ship, you know, when the <laughs> ship blows up. Um, so and you see that resurrection opportunity used over and over and over again in films. Mm-hmm. It used to be called Deus Ex Machinus, um, which, uh, you know, the gods inter- intervene on your yeah. behalf. But that's not what this is. Ellie earned this. You know, she earned yeah. this right to go. And Haddon was smart enough to know that, you know, they might just need a spare. <laughs> yes. So yeah. I love his character and Wood was incredible. I'm, I mean, we, we lost him way too soon, but for yeah. that little, that little bit he has, it's, you can't take him out of the story. Yeah. You can't cut him out of the story and have the same story. Well, you lose the opportunity to have that really powerful ambiguity at the end which we'll get to in a moment but be- thank you we- i'm glad we're going to do that because i got some <laughs> things to say about that <laughs> well the scene where the alien sound is discovered for the first time is so thrilling and it was hugely valuable to read on the page because this could have been a scene where the sound i mean in real life it probably would have been detected on a computer in a boring room very little cinematic urgency to it. You managed to turn it into this car chase and inject a bit of a bit of that urgency. We're cutting back and forth between Ellie and the speeding car and this race against time to kind of lock onto the signal before it's lost with her colleagues. Then we have the Hitler image, which is such a disarming moment. And from what I've read, that that's actually rooted in some factual accuracy. Oh, yeah. 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 That was the 1937 broadcast uh, that, that left... Uh Earth and would so it would have been it would had all that time to travel and come back mm. first to first television signal. Yeah, it's the sort of thing I heard someone describe it once as the sort of thing they can imagine Carl reciting as uh, at a dinner party. So, did you know that if aliens ever received a broadcast from us, guess who it would be? Exactly, <laughs> exactly. Uh, that to, that to me is is a brilliant and ingenious part of this because that anticipation which Carl and Anne wrote very well in the book is very well represented on the screen. Uh, my original scene had her further away from the, from the array out in the middle of the desert. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that when she's driving back, she's speeding back and Carl describes in the book, all the jackrabbits come out and line up beside the road, almost like a, like a, 
uh, a salute, you know, that there's hundreds of jackrabbits sitting there in, in the night with the moon out and she's driving her, whatever, I think it was a Thunderbird uh, in the book as fast as she can to get back to the array. Mm-hmm. Um, that's where Zemeckis really knocked it out of the park. I mean, he really captured the energy that Carl wanted captured in that, that moment where this is real. Yeah. Uh, I also had her listening to washing machines, you know, listening to windmills. I mean, she was trying to find that, 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 uh, that signal in the chaos, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, But, you know, you don't, it could have very easily been a limited series, but no, we weren't doing that in those days. We had to pack everything into two hours. Mm -hmm. Um, But no, it's, it is. And I can do the signal. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, The, the sound design, and and uh, Alan Silvestri's music and the editing are so in, in, in incredibly in, integral and important in that sequence, mm. you know. Um, and just to her two crazy guys that you know that she worked with, uh, Fish and Miru's name. Um, and you see how primitive their equipment was. Yeah, I mean they're literally plugging in speakers and you know and, and thumping on screens and and. And and we we invented Zoom for that. I mean, they do all those video <laughs> chats, you know. Um, but you look at how primitive the equipment was. It's like when you go back and look into Mission Control, uh, an Apollo capsule, and you see toggle switches. <laughs> yeah. What? <laughs> so uh, it's it, and it comes at just the right time in the film. Yes. Yeah. You're you're not quite you're not quite halfway through the film when the signal shows up. You mentioned there doing, you know, if, if it was done today, perhaps it would be, uh, you know, a TV series. And with that, perhaps you'd have more screen time. Here's a hypothetical question for you. Of course, next in the story, we have Ellie sort of decodes the data. There's this almost sort of detective-like strand of the film where, you know, they're sort of solving the clues. And eventually they discover that the these are blueprints for a machine that will transport one person to Vega. Of course, when the machine is built and about to be tested, a terrorist blows up the structure, killing Ellie's boss. In the finished film, there's a tiny TV segment that alludes to sort of religious fundamentalism. We've obviously seen this character at other points making these anti-scientific rants. If you were making this as a TV show today, would you toy with exploring more of the backstory of this character and the sort of band of terrorists that he represents? Or was that something you just never really had any sort of interest in delving into? Well, I had a much more elaborate um, view of that character, the whole uh, penetration and how he got into the, how he got even got into the, the array and got into the, the systems command. Oh, really? I, I did a whole thing on, on, cause it, it was the intercut with um, the excitement building around the, the, the day and the, the, the test launch and the interviews and what have you. Uh, I even had them, how they come in in their truck and how they, they already had their uniforms on. I mean, I, I did a whole thing. You didn't, ultimately you didn't need it. All you needed yeah. to do was cut to him being there, you know, which is much more of a surprise where, and a, like an oh shit. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was doing an old Alfred Hitchcock method of intercutting, but creating the tension about when is the bomb going to go off, you know? And maybe in a maybe in a series you would have had a whole episode about just I could have done a whole episode just about that day. Yeah. Even the construction of the machine, I had I showed the construction of the machine and how and what the alien technology was. But here you just cut to the machine. Yeah. You, you know, it's 
there and it's the day of celebration. So maybe in a, maybe in a, a series, you could have been more elaborate about what, how did they build that? What is it made out of? Mine was really kind of weird, almost like 3d printing before 3d printing was invented. You know, there were these, there were these solutions that mix and you actually watch the machine grow organically, almost like a piece of coral, mm. you know, but sped up in time. And sure, maybe, maybe uh, with more time could have let some of that run. But I, th- I think it was very efficient what, uh, what Zemeckis did in terms of hitting those, those, those plot points. Yeah, yeah. That moment seems like a more extreme version of something we're seeing throughout the film. Even in the White House, there are humans who are resistant to the idea of uh, you know, pursuing the idea of alien life. Even once we have proof, there's skepticism, there's fear. Why was that such a fascinating thing to explore, this idea that humans might be too flawed, too self-destructive to make this leap? Well, it's Kitz's character voices that, you know, maybe they're, maybe it's the, it's the um, Trojan horse and, uh, we're inviting them in and they come out and wipe us out. You know, that's the, that's the kind of the mindset of humanity that Carl resisted was the belief that anything foreign, anything out there is bad and we have to defend against it because they're coming here. They're going to come here and do us in, mm-hmm. uh, religion doesn't believe in alien life in the universe. It's not, it's not, I mean, at least Christianity uh, is not, or, or, and I think Muslim is not taught that there is another life form beyond this, this earth. So you're already bucking their system. And uh, uh, Kitz kind of voices that holds. He said he's the voice of skepticism and the voice of, of doom that, you know, that, and maybe they're coming here to kill us. You know, maybe it's a big trick. You know, that's the mindset, that defensive mindset that, um, keeps us from accepting uh, certain possibilities and certain truths. And I'm sure it's like the day the earth stood still, the original, the good one, the yeah. first one, Michael Rennie. Uh, first thing we do is shoot to get, shoot the messenger, you know, put a bullet in him. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's how, that's, that's how we think. And Carl was trying desperately to reverse engineer that. But he didn't ignore the religious question and the philosophical questions. He played right into them. And the book even goes in deeper. Yeah. So we didn't avoid it and we can't, you know, and we're, but we're seeing it right now. We're seeing right now in our world how destructive religion is and how divisive it is. It's not inclusive. It does judge. It does punish, you know, it does isolate. It does um, start wars. It does mm-hmm. kill people in the name of whoever's God your team is on. So, and I think that I think Carl would be very disappointed in in how that's how we haven't gotten better. Yeah, yeah. So, James, we've been teasing it this entire conversation. We've alluded to these different endings. Nah. Let's get into it. This, this, uh, it's been actually quite hard to sort of track all the different iterations and all the sort of proposed endings. I mean, Zemeckis has mentioned one in which the sky opens up and all these angelic aliens put on a light show. He said that the, the script was great up until that point and then he decided not to do the film because he didn't think that was a, a good enough ending. And of course, he did later circle back around and end up doing the film, but it sounds like it, it, you did sort of cycle through different versions of, of how this film could end. Talk me through them. <laughs> what happened? Uh, in my um, toolkit, my heart chart toolkit, we have these signposts um, that I think work for narrative structure. And the last one is called, do you have a satisfying ending? 
not a happy ending, not a sad ending, not a Hollywood ending, not an upbeat, you know, is it, is the audience satisfied? Have you taken them on a journey and, you, and where you've landed them, are they happy? They're not necessarily happy. Are they satisfied? And I'm not satisfied with the, the content ending. I think it's ambiguous. Um, the only the only proof that maybe something really did happen to Ellie was the, the exchange between Kitts and the vice president uh, about there's these 18 hours of missing of static on the tape. You know, that's right. Yeah, that's a Nixon referral back to the old Watergate days in the script that Carl and I worked on. The ending we had, he wanted to make sure that the that the audience and Ellie knew that it really happened. That she she had proof that it happened, even though she couldn't produce the proof in the hearing. And they gave her an award and gave her a grant, and sent her off into the to do more research. In my ending, uh, she is. We still had pie, mm-hmm. so they've given her this money. They've given her this award. She and Josh. This is three years later. She and Josh have a kid, Sam. You know, who's two. Uh, and they're out in the desert. Joss is off in South America on some missionary thing, you know. Uh, and she's there at the array. The kids, all the school kids are there. And she has this giant um, computer, a cray computer in those days, carrying out pie. There's millions and millions and millions and millions of, 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 of digits, transcendental numbers. And as she's giving the kids a tour, she can't find Sam. The, the babysitter, the, the what, looking, you know, he, he was playing over here and they look for him everywhere. And this is after she said to the kids, you know, if it's just us, um, it's an awful waste of space. Keep looking. Uh, so she's alone and she goes into the computer room and there's Sam sitting in the seat. And he's just looking at the screen. Yeah. And all of a sudden the screen locks up. And inside, inside this massive numbers, there begins to be these concentric circles. One, two, three, you know, zero, um, which is a signature that this was created. And as that happens, we and she realizes that that well, I think she says, wherever you are in the universe, pi times the radius squared is, is, is the truth. And that everything, uh, the circle, um, is uh, an, an atoms, a basketball hoop. You know, uh, a baseball, a, uh, you know, a, a marble, uh, the earth, those don't happen in nature naturally. You know, you don't find circles in nature that, that are natural. So, and as you, you start pulling out and you get to um, Haddon's his, uh, station and they're zipping him into the bag to send him into the universe. And you actually follow the, the jettison. They sent him out of the universe. And that's when you see, you go through the kind you go through Saturn's rings, you go through constellate, you know, you, you see circles throughout the universe. And I, that was, and that was the ending that, that Carl and I, and, and, and she's giving a, a, she's talking over this. And that's, that was the ending that Carl and I at that point agreed on. I'm sure he may have changed it later, but it was proof that Ellie was right. It mm. did happen. We're not alone. So, and so she's satisfied, even though she was you know, knocked down a notch and, you know, and had her wings clipped and all that kind of stuff. There's the proof. And right. Haddon is the one who takes us into the universe that we know we're now connected to for real. That is really interesting. 
what's fascinating about the ending as it currently is, Ellie has is almost placed in this. Uh, she's previously been quite religious skeptic. I mean, we have that scene where she says, you know, she she's asked, "Do you believe in God?" And it cost it essentially costs her, yeah. you know, the trip on the mission. Instead, she has to at the end of the film uh, accept that she can't prove something, but she believes it in the deepest part of her soul, which is, you know, that that's faith, that's religion. There, it's interesting that that was uh, was that a Zemeckis thing that he added in, or how did that find its way into the script? I don't know. Uh, I just know that when there was, um, I was told that it was cut out, and they were doing, they, they were pie was gone. And if you remember the scene, Ellie has a, she holds up her hand, and there's a little sparkling ring. In her hand when she's sitting there on the cliff. Yeah. You know, her father, that's the last thing her father shows her is his hand with that that little glowing ring. That's that is our reference to pie. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, that's the that's the eternal circle that connects all of us. Yeah. And that was it. And I'm going, okay, well, what does that mean? <laughs> you know, I mean, what does it mean now in the context of the film? You know, nobody knows nobody knows why that's there. Yeah, why he holds it out wonder. to her, why she, you know, I'm going, well, there, you know, you, you had a perfect moment where you could have you know, said something about it. And it's, and to me, it's ambiguous. And um, I think Zemeckis wanted the audience to decide for themselves. And that's not a scientific, that's not a scientist way to think. Mm-hmm. You know, it happened, it's real, and I can prove it. And she couldn't prove it, but she also wouldn't use the word faith. And in my ending, she proved it. She was right. Mm. And you don't need faith. You don't need a religion to have to believe that the universe is created by higher intelligence. You can show it scientifically. So they both, and, and McConaughey's right. They both are after the same, same truth. Mm. You know? uh, and they're both looking for the same result. They're just using different methods of, of, of getting there. Where do you see context influence as having extended to over the last 20 years? It, we, we've mentioned Arrival, which, which I adored and saw, saw the connection to. Um, are there other kind of places where you saw um, either in sort of film culture or in wider pop culture and people's understanding of what it would mean to discover alien life? Where are the places where you've seen contact move the needle? Uh, wow, that's a toughie because... Um I'm looking at what is getting on Netflix and Amazon and Hulu and Disney plus, And I'm not seeing, I'm seeing a lot of superhero stuff and I'm seeing a lot of uh, alien stuff and still, still more bad aliens. The only, the only good alien is a dead alien. I, I don't know. I mean, I'm trying right now to do a show. We have a showrunner and we're trying to sell a series now that takes this phenomenon that we've just seen with the, the Pentagon sort of disclosing this and takes an incident from 1980 in Rindlesham, not in your part of the world, yeah, um, but puts it in the context of today of something that really could, something that really could happen today, just like contact, where a a potential nuclear attack is interrupted uh, and actually keeps North Korea and the U.S. from going to nuclear war. What caused that interruption? What caused those missiles to veer off and go away? And why? Wow. And we're trying really hard to keep it almost like a thriller as opposed to there's no way you don't see any aliens. You don't see that. It's all evidence of, of their presence of trying to make sure we don't kill each other. <laughs> Ideally. Giving us one last chance. Okay. This is the last time we're going to stop you from doing this, you know? 
I don't know. We'll see. I, I, I and I may be. I may have. I, listen. I watched. Uh, I love the whole moon thing that uh, Amazon canceled after a season when they finally mm-hmm. got to the moon. I love The Martian. You know, in terms of, of trying to make something real, uh, I appreciated the science that went into that. Great thinking on uh, poop potatoes. You know, <laughs> uh, they use science on how he's going to be rescued. Mm. Uh, I thought Arrival. I went and saw Arrival by myself in Texas. Uh, when I was taking care of my parents at 11 at night, I was genuinely, of course, I figured it out because that's, I'm, I'm a writer, but uh, I thought, or I thought um, Interstellar was great, noble effort, you know, and really it had a bunch of different messages, especially about climate change and also what we're up against to, to survive as a species. Mm. Um, that's probably the closest, maybe even more so than Arrival in terms of um, of getting off our ass and getting out there you know uh, lost in space the reboot uh, was okay yeah but it didn't it, again it didn't celebrate any of the it, it was it's like you know star trek is, is <laughs> does more to promote coexistence uh than um, a lot of these films do and there's a void you know and i was hoping that this spike with the pentagon might wake people up, but I think they're so, of course they exist. Of course there's UFOs. Of course they're, you know, mm. uh, or it's, or, you know, oh, it's just another, something we'll sweep under the rug. So hopefully we get a shot at this series. I don't know if it's, we're going to be able to sell it or not, but it's trying to, it's trying to, again, re- dramatize what would really happen if. Well, that sounds really exciting, James. And um, gosh, I hope it, I hope it all comes together. Me too. <laughs> all right. Well, I should let you go, but this has been such a blast, as I'm sure you've been able to tell from this conversation. I'm obsessed with this film and have been since quite a young age. So thank you so much for coming on Script Apart, James. My pleasure. And uh, just, uh, you know, it's not a waste of space. You've been listening to Script Apart, hosted by me, Al Horner, produced by Camille Demek. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next time.